Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. It is so nice to be able to read through um, these reviews. It is really, really nice to be able to see the five-star reviews, of course, (laughs) but to hear what people have to say about it and read what people have to say about it. And I, I appreciate the fact that there has been some talk about how this show is done with empathy. And I'm very glad that that is coming through because that is the tone that I really wanted to set from the very start, that everyone has a chance to share their story safely and respectfully and with an empathic stance on my part and on the part of the listeners. So I'm really glad that that has been transmitted. And thank you also to our listeners in the U.S. and Great Britain and Germany, Norway, Iceland, and Ireland, and all over the world. Also, a lot of listeners, it seems, in Mauritius. And that's a really unique place and uh, not a place you hear about a lot. And I did some digging to try to find out why we were suddenly having a very high ranking in this place um, that's across the world. And it seems that there are a number of groups there that are alarming the population and uh, being very troubling to the people who have gotten involved and to their families, their worried families. So uh, it's interesting to look at different parts of the world and see what is drawing people to this podcast and why. So for today, we have Dr. Laura Anderson. She is a therapist, trauma resolution and recovery coach, a writer, an educator, and creator who specializes in complex trauma with a focus on domestic violence, sexualized violence, and religious trauma. She has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and a PhD in mind-body medicine, with her research focusing on the experience of living in a healing body after sexual trauma. Laura has a small private practice in Nashville, Tennessee, and is the founder and director of the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, an online coaching company where she and the other practitioners work with clients who have experienced high-demand, high-control religions, adverse religious experiences, cults, and religious trauma. In 2019, Laura co-founded the Religious Trauma Institute, with the goal of providing trauma-informed resources, consultation, and training to clinicians and other helping professionals who work with religious trauma survivors. Laura's first book is called When Religion Hurts, Reclaiming Your Life After Religious Trauma. You can find out more info about her and her work at drlauraanderson.com. Here she is now. I 
am so very happy to have Dr. Laura Anderson with me today. It is so nice to meet someone in the field, somebody who is doing similar work, someone also who comes to it with a real sense of purpose, that this is something that it affected you personally, but also affects you in terms of your conscience. This is something that you are feeling really driven to educate people about and do a lot of uh, protection out there. And so I really value your time and your research. And I can't wait to talk to you about about 400 things that I wrote down that I want to cover with you today in 90 minutes. I hope that's not asking too much. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Good. So can you spend a a few moments just introducing yourself and what brings you to this subject and also the work that you're doing now? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting journey. I think for so many therapists, um, part of what inspires their work with clients is their own journey, things that they've gone through, their own experiences or people that are close to them. And that is what ex- inspires my own work as well. Having grown up in what I would consider a high control religion, a ministry family. My father was the director at a fundamentalist Christian camp. Pretty fun to grow up on a lake with a horse corral and a ropes course in your backyard, but also some parts of it that uh, had some lingering effects. Ultimately, it was those experiences that you know kind of led me to make different choices about things like college, relationships, jobs, career, uh, friends, and ultimately leaving all of that behind that led me to Nashville, which is the Bible belt for people who don't know where they ask you, what's your name and what church do you go to? There's a lot of religion that's just very much accepted as everyday life here in the South. It's just very natural. And I started to notice as I was doing my own deconstruction work, clients ended up in my office just without even having to advertise it much, asking questions, asking about, um, you know, this thing that happened to me, is this normal or gosh, you know, I don't believe these messages anymore, but I'm having these physiological responses. It was through that and through my own process, and then eventually going back to get my doctorate, that I started to really realize religious trauma as an issue, just in general, but also then the prevalence of it. And I think it was really the 2016 elections here in the United States that prompted an uh, what I would call a mass exodus out of many high control religions that created a group of people who desperately needed support and had very few places to get that from. Many therapists have no idea that you could be traumatized by religion. You know, we're taught in our programs that religion is this pro-social supportive factor, and it certainly can be for some people, but we're not taught about what happens when religion is the thing that harms you. And so I very quickly realized there was a need. I realized this was a need that I wanted to fill and started to get creative about ways that I could do that both in my own individual practice and then bringing resources out into the public through different written resources, like a manual I created for um, other clinicians, as well as then my online coaching company where we work specifically or most focused with religious trauma. But yeah, my professional journey is absolutely inspired by the personal and it's it's been wonderful. I've really liked it. <laughs> right. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes, it's very personal and then very meaningful. Um, hits close to home. And I'm sure that's sometimes not easy because it brings up 
some of your own experiences, some of your own memories. And so I want to be able to talk about uh, religious trauma, adverse religious experiences, spiritual abuse versus spiritual trauma, deconversion, purity culture, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my, there's, <laughs> right? There's yes. a lot. And how to heal from it. And so we'll, we, we will get to that. So going to a fundamentalist church that's right there in your your yard, basically, uh, and that there were lingering impacts. What was sort of a day like at camp in that way uh, or in life in that way? And and I think picking out sort of the, the everydayness of it, but also what was distinctive about that experience? That's such a great question, one that most people don't ask. You know, the everyday, I should say, it was a year-round camp. Now, we didn't have, you know, summer camp, of course, is what most camps are known for, where kids come for, you know, a week or so at a time. So there was that part of it. And then during the year when school was in session, every weekend was retreats. Oftentimes during the week, there was other groups that would rent out the space. I appreciate what you said about it kind of being a normal, like this is just this is just my normal, right? Like I walk a half a mile down to the dining hall for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sometimes I go early and I watch them play games or I do this or that. There's chapel every night, um, which includes singing and a message and sometimes altar calls and, you know, all the things that we kind of think of stereotypically with camp, especially uh, evangelical or Christian camps. But it was every day of the summer <laughs> for, you know, months and, and then years at a time. And so it was just it was my normal. I didn't know anything out of that. In, in, in fact, even though we were not like two hours away from civilization, camps are usually like in the woods. They're not in the middle of a city. And so, you know, it was very common in my growing up years that when I was done with school, like at the end of the school year, I would have three, three and a half months where I would not see anybody outside of my camp bubble for that period of time. And then every September, I would have to kind of like re-entry back into the world and figure out kind of how to juggle this camp life and then this school life. And then of course, I had a church on top of that. My my school was 30 minutes away in one direction. My church was about 40 minutes away in another direction, which was a fundamentalist church as well. And so we're kind of juggling all these different lives, essentially, you know, and of course, as a teenager and you're figuring out who, who am I, um, it, it was, it was confusing. I think that's the best way to say it. It wasn't until years later that I started to realize things like isolation or dress codes, or kind of living in that bubble that was very um, curated for specific rules and lifestyles and things like that, that it would have had an impact on me. And, and it did. I carried a lot of shame with me that I wasn't able to identify for years, but thought it was just my normal, right? <laughs> to constantly be hypervigilant, to constantly be assuming I had done something wrong, to constantly be assuming I had made somebody stumble by what I wore or how I interacted with them. Those were things that were really, really harped on, right? Because everything is in service for the Lord. And so when you live at a camp and you're a director's kid, there is a certain expectation of how you act and how you talk, how you interact, and that you're always an example. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> My family is also heavily involved in the church and then eventually heavily involved in the school system. So from all of those different systems, there's kind of this spotlight of being watched all the time, which can create a lot of hypervigilance and a lot of feelings of just 
kind of just a, like a general low level fear. <laughs> you know, you're never quite sure what's, what people are going to say about you, how that's going to be interpreted, the punishments that you might receive for it. So typical days, you know, in the summer were pretty fun in the sense that there was constantly activity and then uh, very isolating when there wasn't, it was, it was a dramatic shift. And it's one of those things that sometimes I still go back to it. I'm like, have I fully like understood the impact of that? But I kind of nowadays just like, let it rise, bubble up to the top whenever it needs to process through it and then, you know, move forward. But I definitely can see now, you know, 25 years past that, I can see how it set me up for additional ministry and other um, kind of church evangelical fundamentalist opportunities, experiences, thinking, ways of operating in the world and relating that camp life was very foundational to who I became in my 20s or late teenager years and 20s. So, right, being watched all the time and then this general sense of fear, but also uh, blame. So when you were saying, I thought I'd made somebody stumble by what I wore. Very interesting. I mean, that I think about the court system and how many times women are asked what they were wearing and why whatever it is that shouldn't have happened to them happened to them and somehow blaming them. It all kind of follows suit. And I could see why that would be a message that would really stick home. I wonder if it was the same with boys, if they were wearing something that they shouldn't have worn, would they have been responsible? You know, it's so interesting because at camp, there was a little bit of that, a little bit. There was a dress code for the boys, right? But it was far less strict than for the girls. You know, for girls, it's like, okay, here's, for instance, the type of swimsuit that you can wear or cannot wear, but also then probably put a t-shirt and a pair of shorts over it. Whereas the boys at the camp, it was like zero dress code. So you could have short shorts, you could have long shorts, you could wear a shirt, you could not wear a shirt. And there wasn't this kind of equitable situation where it was like, hey, girls, here's how you're making the boy could make the boys stumble. But guys, here's, you know, how you could make girls stumble. Because it was so taught that women aren't visual. It's the men who are visual. It was this idea that men are visual. They are sexual. They're thinking about sex a minimum of all the time. And so anything could, you know, be a source of lust or stumbling or anything like that. And of course, then it's the girl's responsibility to ensure that they are doing literally everything in their power and then some (laughs) to not quote unquote, make their brothers in Christ stumble and fall into sin. And so it was a lot. There was a lot of, uh, I don't like to necessarily use the word policing, but that it's, I'm using it intentionally to say there was a lot of policing of things like clothing, behavior, conversation, action, because it all had to fit into some very specific contexts. Uh, You had to follow the rules because that was what made you godly. You know, I came across this meme and it said, girls' bodies are not responsible for boys' thoughts. Yes. And, but that is not the message. That is not the message with orthodoxy where women wear a a wig, where they have to cover, cover, cover with burkas, with everything. Uh, That is never the message in in more uh, fundamentalist branches of anything. And it's, really, really frustrating and infuriating the inequity and how unfair it is and how much blame is redirected onto the victim over and over again. So here, just the idea of being watched all the time, very often people are watched, they worry about criticism, not necessarily compliments. 
you know, that they're not watched to see what they're doing right. And they're not going to get a gold star at the end of the day. They're going to be admonished for something. That's usually how it goes. And so how was that handled in that environment when someone noticed that you were doing something they thought you shouldn't have been doing? Yeah. I mean, that was constant. And, you know, it was done anytime that anybody talks to you. Of course, it's done in a spirit of quote unquote love that we're just trying to look out for you. Like, this is something you're going to thank us for. Um, This is something like we're trying to like help you be edifying to yourself, to God, to others. And so it comes at you in this very spiritual way, right? Where they use this language of like, you know, God really wants us to, you know, help our brothers out, you know, or we're really seeking to make sure that, you know, we're making godly men, godly women, right? And so in order to do that, we have to be able to like point out when somebody's not doing what the Bible or God or whomever says you're supposed to be doing. And so it's coming from this place of, kind of cloaked in spiritual language, but that actually is part of what I call like the crazy making behavior, because then it's very hard to combat that. So if somebody comes to me and says, this is going against, you know, the Bible or your behavior is, you know, like, I'm really concerned that what you're wearing is going to cause people to stumble and to sin and to lust after you. It's very hard to push back against that and say, no, that's not true. Or no, it's not. Or they're responsible for themselves because we've now invoked this higher power who is in charge of everything. And so if I come in the name of the Lord to tell you this, well, then I'm suggesting that there's no questions here. You just have to do what I say. And that can really mess with you because, of course, it takes the locus of control completely away from you. And over time, there is no internal locus of control. It is all outsourced and we then become dependent upon what everybody else is telling us to do or say or where or how to act or how to relate because we've been told we can't trust our evil selves. We are always going to make the wrong choice. In fact, we were born that way. There is no good within us. And so we have to look to these outside sources. So it does start in very subtle ways, cloaked in very spiritual language, because that increases the sense of control that a system or people in the system can then have over you. Right. You know, and and I think for some people who really do care about others, they're going to use that um, ability to be critical for the right reason, at least with a good intention. And then, of course, there are others who are going to do a pile on just because they can. And it's a power play and you can tell they're enjoying it and they're given free license to do it, which is sort of bringing out very bad behavior, I think. Yeah. And I really appreciate you saying that because, you know, I think about like my own self, I was very much like a leader in ministry settings. So after I graduated from high school, I actually began working at a church at the church that I grew up at. Uh, full-time. And I moved from a more kind of assistant type position into more of a coordinator director role. And so with that, I was kind of required to have conversations with women in particular. In this case, we're talking students. So probably like sixth to 12th grade, and then any of my female youth staff. 
I kind of oversaw them. And so if there was an issue that came up, that was my responsibility then to talk to them. So I can think of many experiences, even off the top of my head, where I had to go and, you know, confront a student about something that they were wearing or the way that they were acting. And I know, and I trust my intentions that I never was doing it to have power over. I had genuine concern. And part of this is because I have male siblings that would share with me these struggles. And so when, when the gal walks in with the low cut V or the super tight shorts or this or that, I'm going, oh my gosh, like you, maybe you have no idea what you're doing to these boys around us. So I'm going to tell you this from this place of what I thought was love and trying to help them become you know, closer to God and, you know, women of Christ and whatever. And I'm telling them like, Hey, that thing that you're wearing, you're causing people to sin. Um, of course, I, I think I said it a little bit nicer <laughs> than that, but that was my message. But I can give myself some grace, like my younger self grace to say that was coming from the most well-intentioned place while also still holding in the other hand that that was actually deeply harmful. You know, we're complex. It's often, it's it's very infrequent that it's all tr- all this or all that. And so both experiences go together. I can be kind enough to myself to say, yeah, that was not a, a power grab for you. And also realize that did damage. I know it did. I have had students come back to me and say, hey, these things that you said, these things that you taught me, like it impacted me profoundly. I've had to do my own therapy work around that. Of course, that's devastating. I understand that. Yes, that's very hard. And and right. But yes, with good intentions. I mean, that, that makes all the difference, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, wrestling with your own conscience about it. So let's move through this story because I know there's so much Oh, there's so much detail, but coming to the point where you realized this was not your life anymore. This is not the life you wanted to be living. You know, I'm skipping over a lot, but tell me about that transitional time for you. Yeah. You know, it's fun to look back a little bit because I can see even from the time that I was a very little girl, I had questions, I had doubts, but I quickly learned that was not okay to ask the, about those things. But I remember these moments throughout my life where I'd go like, I don't think this is real. <laughs> I think this is not what life is about. I think there's more or different or things like that. But I had grown up in such an insulated way, in such an insulated community, and in situations where there was so much uh, potential consequence and punishment for asking questions or trying to get out that for a long time, I was like, it's too much of a risk. I can't, I cannot do that. So I stayed, you know, and, and there was a period of time where I actually did try to leave. I wasn't actually trying to leave the faith. I was just trying to leave my specific church, my religion that I had grown up in. There had been a lot of spiritual abuse that was happening. I didn't have words for that at the time, but I could feel it in my body. I was like, oh, this is not sitting right. And at some point it became so intolerable that I had made a decision. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my therapy, you know, degree and license. I'm going to, you know, move a couple hours away. And, and I tried to do that. And the leaders at the church actually stopped me by contacting the programs that I was applying to and the jobs I was applying to, to kind of spin a narrative and sell some stories that made it so that I was not a good candidate for their programs anymore. And so it was devastating, of course, but I'm proud of myself for trying to leave, for knowing I had to get out, but they made it impossible. And at at the time, 
I only had a degree in like Bible and Christian ministry. And I was very well aware that I had very few options of what I could do with a degree like that. And so I opted to go back to, I did end up quitting my job at the church, but I started this restoration process where I was trying to get back in their good graces after a lot of lies and stories had been told. Um, And so I was trying to get back in their good graces because of course I was also sold this lie growing up that if you're not under the protective umbrella of the church, you're kind of out there for the devil to get you. And that, of course, is one of the scariest things I think that I could have dealt with at the time. And so I was really committed to trying to get back into the good graces of the church leaders and to be able to feel normal there again. Um, And so I did that, but in tandem, I actually did end up going back to school and quickly into the program realized, I think that the things I've been taught my whole life may not be accurate because if, and interestingly, I went to a super fundamentalist uh, school. I went to Liberty university for my master's degree, which uh, they don't have a Christian counseling program. It's, it's regular therapy and counseling, but I remember it just being a bit more progressive than what I had grown up in and thinking if what this person, this professor is saying is true, I think there's a lot of things that I have to think about because it it means that the ways that I've seen the world um, simply, it, it's not that simple. It's not so cut and dry or in a box. And so that is what I kind of consider my first step away of going like, Hey, I think I'm going to, now I know it would be called deconstruction. I didn't have that word 17 years ago or 18 years ago or whatever, but I had started to deconstruct and I made a plan about halfway through my grad program that as soon as I was done, I was going to move to Nashville. I just knew something in me told me that I can't live essentially in this environment. I will be suffocated and silenced even more. But I knew that I needed like a viable career option in order to be able to move. So I waited until I was done with my program. I moved here to Nashville and I had these grand ideas that everything was going to change. But as we know about humans, we gravitate towards familiarity. And so I found more friends who grew up very fundamentalist and had the same theological beliefs and all these things. Now, the one saving grace in that is I did end up at what we might call a progressive Southern Baptist church. And what that meant for me was that they allowed for questions to be asked without doubting my salvation, which was absolutely huge. And that was the stepping stone that I needed to be able to just acknowledge my questions. This is, Hey, is this right? What do I actually think about this? At the same time, I started dating somebody who I met at the church and he very much encouraged the questions. And that was so new to me also to be with somebody who wasn't like scared by the questions I was asking, even if it meant my answers didn't land back in the nice, neat little box. So the relationship, which is kind of the turning point of how I really left, it was very abusive. But at the very beginning, during those love bombing phases and everything, there was a lot of room and space for questions to show up differently. And I will always cherish that time because of that. It was so pivotal, but it did turn into an abusive relationship. And um, there's a lot of kind of reasons I stayed in it that had to do with with my uh, upbringing and uh, fundamentalist teachings and things like that. But I remember after breaking it off, kicking him out of our home, I had this moment where I was looking in my journal and I was reading through some different things I had written. And I got very confused because I was like, I don't know who told me this, if this was God 
or if this was my abusive partner, because the voice sounds the same. And I realized it wasn't hard for me to believe when my partner said, you're stupid, you're unworthy, there's nothing good about you. I believed that easily because I had been taught that for decades at that point. And so all of a sudden I stepped back and I was like, oh my goodness, like this is, this is like an abusive relationship, like with God or the version of God that I was taught as the abuser or as the church as the abuser. And that was my, you know, if we have to have like a moment where it's like, I've, I've got to change this. It was that moment again, did not have words like religious trauma, deconstruction, things like that. I just knew I couldn't do this anymore. That was actually, I think like 10 or 11 years ago and, and just really just kept taking steps out, was in therapy for some other stuff and was able to kind of start to figure out like, oh, some of what I'm dealing with, this anxiety, this, these flashbacks, these are what that's all from this religious stuff that's been going on. My goodness. What a powerful moment. Powerful, powerful, powerful. There's so much that we have to grapple with where we have to understand why we feel the way we feel about ourselves, why we look at ourselves a certain way, why we feel non-deserving of being treated a certain way and where that's come from. Uh, And so when that got reinforced, I'm so glad though that it was a wake-up call that you thought, okay, this feels familiar and I'm reading here and it's looking familiar. And I'm so glad you could put that together. You know, I want to go back for a second before we spring forward, where you were talking about how they were making you afraid of the devil in the world out there and kind of messing up your life and your chances to have a good life out there. But meanwhile, they were contacting the programs that you were applying to and sabotaging your chances but scaring you about the devil messing up your life, they were messing up your life. And I don't know if they felt like they were protecting you or whatever it was, or just trying to keep you. But, you know, if they're acting like this, the thing that they're making you feel scared of, I mean, that's another ironic moment where they're causing it. Yeah. I mean, really the ultimate gaslighting, right? Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Yeah. Right. And I was often told, and I mean, I like, I have very crystal clear memories, multiple memories of various pastors saying, this is for your own good. We are doing this to protect you. Someday you'll look back and you'll see that this was all done out of a place of love and concern and this and that. And at the time I wanted to believe them because of course I'd been conditioned to believe my spiritual authorities, but there was always that part in me that was like, absolutely not. Like, there's no time I'm going to look back on this and be like, oh, I'm so glad this happened. No, no, I've never been glad that that has happened. I've never looked back and chuckled and been like, oh, can you believe what a little idiot I was, you know, at 22 years old or whatever? No, I never have. In fact, I, I am like pretty proud of myself for figuring certain things out, but I've never thought that I was an idiot. I thought I was really brave for trying to handle things in a different way. And I've never looked back and thought, yeah, I'm so glad I went through this. It just, that's never crossed my mind. 
It's so interesting. There's so much that is said with this air of justification that it is for you and for your own good. And there's a lot of abuse that's justified in that way and sabotaging. And the only one who ever is really happy about it is the person who's doing it, right? Because it works, at least temporarily. Okay, so here you found yourself in this relationship. And then along the kind of the trajectory of your life, the chronology, what point did you start studying all about abuse and religious abuse? Yeah. So interestingly, when I first began my private practice, I was actually working almost exclusively with victims of domestic violence or individuals who are trying to get out of domestically violent relationships or had just gotten out of domestically violent relationships. Um, I was also able to recognize, of course, I was in one. But so I had been doing a lot of research about that and it was right around, it was kind of an intersection of personal and professional that I is when I started putting pieces together in regard to the correlations between domestic violence and spiritual abuse, there really weren't a lot of like resources at that time. So I was having to take my own experiences, experiences that I talked to my clients about, and then other pieces of research that were, you know, coming out about trauma in specific to kind of try to put this together. As I'm sure you're familiar with, like how we understand trauma today is very different than how we understood it 15, 20, 30 years ago. Right. And so when I think back to, you know, the 2008 to 2012, 13, we're getting kind of this influx of research from people like Peter Levine and Stephen Porges and uh, Bessel van der Kolk and Judith Herman, that's like in some ways so groundbreaking, right? Like, oh yeah, trauma is not in your head. It's in your body and you know all these things. And so I feel like I was, as all this stuff is going on in my personal life and I'm seeing things in my office, I'm like trying to like get up to speed on what all this new trauma stuff is. I'm realizing, oh, this is what's happening in me. This is what's happening in my clients. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, sometimes it's really hard or triggering to be working with people who share such a similar story. And I can definitely remember a period of years where I would just be so triggered all day long with my clients and feeling honored that they would sit with me and trust me, but then going home and just being completely depleted exhausted, triggered, and being like, I, I am like one day ahead of my clients. That's it. You know? And so it it feels a little bit like in those times I'm like clawing my way through, like just trying to show up the best that I can trusting the role of the compassionate witness to be, you know, so central to healing and knowing I could offer that even if I wasn't able to articulate everything. But I would say it probably wasn't until 2015, 2016, again, when we're seeing this mass exodus of people coming out of formal religion or kind of fundamentalist religions that were very confused about kind of the political climate of the United States, where all of a sudden we started to see more like concrete resources coming out, people concretely talking about this. This is a thing. This is not just a bad church experience. That's where we started to develop some language around it, right? That, you know, spiritual abuse wasn't just clergy sexual abuse or ritualistic sacrificial practices. Like there's all this other stuff. I feel like societally or culturally, 
that was right around the first time that so many people were actually willing to take a hard look and say, there is something not right here. You know, that was only seven years ago. And so I feel like we've come a long way. There was stuff going on before that, of course, but where it really became more mainstream in regards to social media and language and being able to have public dialogue about here's what's really happening in some of these churches we're talking less than 10 years, especially I should say in evangelical circles. I know that, you know, the Catholic church has dealt with a lot with clergy, sexual abuse and stuff like that, but that was a Catholic problem. Right. And so, you know, kind of moving into the evangelicalism piece, which, you know, so many, uh, so many people like political leaders love to like hitch their wagon to that train and, and stuff like that that was much more recent. And it was kind of one of those things where they could look and say like, oh, that's that's their problem, but we're, we're better than that. And then all of a sudden within the last 10 years, all of these different experiences are being made public and people are realizing this is not quote unquote, just a Catholic problem. This is not a bad church problem. This is not the result of people being sinners, but God being perfect. These are dynamics of power and control that are woven throughout these systems and these groups that like hinge on power and control, all of their practices and beliefs. And so I think it just started becoming more of a public conversation, which allowed for more resources, research, and ultimately support for people going through this. Right. So let's explore this because, I mean, I love when you said that you were a day ahead of your clients. It's so, <laughs> it's such yeah. a beautiful way of thinking about it. Like you're just, just trying to get ahead. Uh, I mean, that's, that's very open, honest and, but it's, it's great that you had, and I'm sure you brought that to your work, a real understanding, a sense of knowing, which I'm sure came through, you know, even though if it was exhausting for you, right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, then clients are not going to feel judged. They're going to feel understood. You're going to be exhausted, but still, you know, sometimes it's a good thing in the moment until you can get a little more distance and then you can take on more and not be right. So needing to take a nap throughout your day. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that happens that is confusing, I think, for people is how to define some of these things because when people are traumatized, a lot of the time, they find that it's their belief system that's carried them through, not the thing that was the catalyst for the abuse. And sometimes there are people who, and people who are not totally honest and upfront at the beginning about what their leaning is. And people come to counseling, licensed therapists, unlicensed therapists or coaches or healers, and they're told that they need to take on some sort of belief system or get closer to God or have a relationship with Jesus in order to get past their trauma. And so it's offered sometimes surreptitiously, sometimes not totally in an honest and a good and a clinical way. But sometimes for some people, it is their solace. It is the thing that helps carry them through. So what happens when it is the thing that has left them feeling damaged? Let's try to make sense of this. What is a way that we can define religious trauma? And I guess the difference between trauma and religious trauma, let's go, let's start there. What I tend to say is that religious trauma is trauma. So religion then acts as a bit of an adjective to help us further understand the context for where these things took place, which also can inform the ways or what we need to do to heal from that, to recover from that. Just like, you know, we would say, hey, if you were 
you know, traumatized from war, if you were sexually abused, if there was childhood trauma, when we look at some of the physiological markers, how does that show up in your body? What are trauma responses? What are, you know, pretty much across the board, we have a good idea and it doesn't necessarily matter where the trauma originated from. We still notice like, Hey, people with PTSD or CPTSD demonstrate these sorts of symptoms. And I would say the same is true for religion. Now I differentiate like trauma resolution and trauma recovery, trauma resolution. I tend to think of more universally where we go, Hey, uh, when we're working with a traumatized individual and we're looking to resolve that trauma, maybe it's stemming from war. Maybe it's stemming from religion. Maybe it's stemming from childhood. We want to get that stuck trauma energy out of the body and resolve it, release it so that it's not living inside us alive and active, ready to, you know, go off at any moment. Now, the recovery piece I think is different and that's a bit more dependent on what happened. For instance, if you have somebody who has been through a war or has been, you know, been fighting a war, we know that like car backfire can sometimes be a trigger puts them back into this space of hypervigilance, needing to fight, flight, freeze, those sorts of things. Whereas perhaps somebody with religious trauma, not so much. The car backfire is not a big thing, but they might be walking through Target in the South and hear this Christian song come on the radio. Whereas the veteran from war is like, eh, whatever, I don't care. Right. And so I think that the recovery piece is where we can like differentiate it and say, Yeah, if you were traumatized inside religion, there are going to be different things that we need to work through, whether it's learning relational skills, learning boundaries, learning a new sexual ethic, you know, all these different things that are are specific to coming out of high control religions as a part of the recovery process. But the resolution piece, the trauma piece, I feel like, in my opinion, it does us well to think of religious trauma as trauma, because when we do that, we have access to all of these resources and modalities and theories and interventions that many people have already tried and true and say, okay, let's work with the trauma in your body in this way. We do not need to recreate the wheel. We have excellent resources to do that. So I think that it's important in that way. When talking about trauma, I say religious trauma is trauma, but the religious part helps us greater understand maybe where some extra needs are going to be. Oh, I like that a lot. So you're opening up the world to all the research that's been done, the language around it, the understanding of the physiological impact, the cellular impact, uh, the body keeps the score impact, the polyvagal theory, all of it. Right. Okay. So the, all of that is really, that's really, really smart. And I wonder too, when people say they feel that they were spiritually abused, but they don't know if it's at the point where they're feeling trauma from it, how do you distinguish? And maybe it's too thin of a, of a boundary to know how to distinguish if someone's been traumatized just because they feel like they've been through something that felt spiritually abusive to them. I think this is actually one of the more common things that people ask about. A couple things that help inform this question is recognizing that, first of all, spiritual abuse is not just clergy sexual abuse, or these really kind of big things that we might hear about on the news. Yes, that's included, but you can think about spiritual abuse in many other ways too, whether it's constantly telling you that you're unworthy and a sinner and not worth it, you're not deserving of the air you breathe, 
that could be spiritual abuse, right? And so I think it's important that people have opportunities to kind of expand what their definition of abuse actually is, that it's not just these really big kind of flashy, disgusting things. It is that, but it is also so much more. And I think that helps people sometimes understand the impact a little bit more of of what may have happened. You know, I always tell people that, you know, abuse and trauma are not synonymous, but uh, trauma can often result from abuse. You know, how that looks in each person's body is going to be different from person to person. So there may be one person who did experience, we'll just use clergy sexual abuse because it's way out there, you know, and, and we know what happens, right? So there may be one person who experienced clergy sexual abuse. And when that was disclosed, they were well supported. They were believed. They were given resources. They were, you know, given um, therapy ongoing to help them navigate through this experience. And then we have another person who was not believed, who was ridiculed, who was shunned, who was told it was their fault or whatever. When we look at those two cases, there's one person of the two that's more likely to result in trauma than the other one. Because on the one hand, we got support and resources. On the other hand, we got a lot of shame and shunning and disconnect. And so part of how we determine, like, is it trauma? Is it not? can be some of those environmental factors of how did that land in your body? What was the support? Did you have support? I believe that everybody is individual in the sense that we can't say this thing, this teaching, this belief, this experience always leads to trauma. We know empirically that's not true. We used to be able to say, you know, like, oh, PTSD comes from, you know, car accident, from war, from a natural disaster. But We know that there's many people who have been through those things who don't experience PTSD. And so we have to allow for some subjectivity and the individual experience, the internal resources, all sorts of other factors that play into, is this going to live in my body as trauma or not? So we, we, when I say we, I have some other colleagues that I work with. We came up with the term adverse religious experience. I think a lot of times when people think of spiritual abuse, they do think of, you know, the clergy sexual abuse, some of the more overt things. And they're not necessarily considering this message like we talked about, like you're unworthy, you're a sinner, you're evil from the moment you take your first breath. So we wanted to develop kind of another, uh, some other language that people might be able to latch on to just to describe their experience. Here's what happened to me, this adverse experience. Our hypothesis, similar to the adverse childhood experiences, is that the more adverse religious experiences you have had, the greater the likelihood that it would result in trauma, in religious trauma. We don't know that for sure. We have some uh, surveys that we've done. We've got some preliminary research that's being done, but it's kind of our working hypothesis. What I'm curious about then with all of this, and of course, I want to talk about purity culture and you know what that does to people and deconversion and all of it. I'm wondering just about how you deal with the fear, you know, the fear that the devil is out there and the fear of the kind of what I think are these false correlations over and over and over again that you can do to yourself. I think about, I don't mean to out my mom here, but I grew up being afraid of ghosts. And um, because whenever there was any sound in the attic or crawl space above the house, she would go, oh, like that. Or she'd go, ooh, like that. She'd make that sound. And so she wasn't really afraid of them. She just thought that they existed. Now, then I would see a squirrel going into the crawl space or a rat or whatever. And we had pet rats. So I wasn't scared of rats. And I would mm-hmm. often name them. And, you know, that was fluffy <laughs> and those were fluffy's kids. 
So I wasn't afraid, but once I saw that it was animals and it was furry woodland creatures, I wasn't scared. But still to this day, if there is a sound in the roof or something and she'll look up and she'll say, oh, I wonder who that is. And I I have to translate that in my mind. Of, I wonder what that is. But how do you keep yourself then from scaring yourself once you leave? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there is no simple process to this. And I think it's worth noting too, that especially if you grow up in a system or a religion like this, we're talking about a more complex trauma here, not just a single incident trauma. And so the quote unquote goal then becomes more of that integration piece of how do we integrate our past into our present and future so that we're not constantly like held back by it. And I say that because similar to your story, of still, you know, years later going, there's a sound. What, who is that? Oh no. What is that? Right. Like you're, you're still catching yourself. And, and that's not said as like a weakness or a shaming thing that just shows like how deeply ingrained those messages can become. Because also it wasn't just a thing that you like were thinking there was a physiological response that your body was having, having, right? So your brain and body are working together to create this experience so that you hear the, the ceiling creak and you automatically without even having to put conscious thought there are like, who is that? Right. And so the same is true with a lot of these religious messages where, you know, whether it's about hell or Satan or some scary punishments and consequences, when we're told those messages over and over, they, they start to create those neural pathways in our brain that sends signals down to our body that creates this automatic response that even if you've stepped away from a religion, even if you've renounced it and say, I do not believe anything like that, we might have an experience that kind of triggers those old neural pathways that gives us a signal down to our bodies. And all of a sudden I'm five years old at church again, hearing this scary message from this pastor. And so when I think about the, what do we do with that? You know, in a therapeutic sense, we might use different modalities like somatic experiencing or uh, internal family systems or, you know, things like that to maybe even go back into some of those moments and do the things that you wish you couldn't or that you weren't able to do that you wish you could have. So maybe it's pushing back or saying no or imagining yourself running away. That doesn't take away the memory. It just may take away the intensity of the response. That's kind of what we're looking for. Of course, there's other things too, brain spotting, EMDR that can help with those sorts of things. But you know, it's it's not um, simply, oh, that's just something I used to believe, get over it, right? That's like telling the anxious person to calm down. No, when our bodies are having physiological responses to things, including fear of hell and demons and Satan, whatever, we have to go into that nervous system level, the physiological piece and start to find a sense of safety inside of us. We can use our external environment to orient around. Maybe we need to find a safe connection to help us, to bring us back into the present moment. Because in those moments, we're not here. We're 20 years ago. We're, you know, back in the spaces that were originally very scary. Right. Okay. So thank you for that. I and mean, it's very helpful. And it sounds also like there needs to be some, kind of patience with it, that it's going to take time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that, right? Change takes time. But when we start to understand like 
the the physiology of trauma, we realize it's it's not, you know, when I have this response to this thing that I used to believe, that's not because it's a weakness within us. That is our body having a very normal reaction to something that we have perceived or really was quite scary. And so when we can even give ourselves a bit of space for compassion to say, oh, okay, my body's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing, trying to keep me safe. But what I need my body to do actually is to come into the present moment and realize we're not back then. We are safe. We're in this present moment right now. And when we can offer compassion and what you said, patience, Sometimes that lifts that shame away that says, what's wrong with you? Why do you still believe this? Why are you acting that way? When we have space away from that shame, it gives us more capacity to be able to actually integrate and to, you know, come into the present moment and create a resource for ourselves that we might need safety, stability, connection. It's so interesting too, because I think so often people will adopt an answer just to have an answer. And so there's an anxiety for some people about not knowing and not having the answer. And then you fill in the blanks, really, I think sometimes with your anxiety or your your trained thinking. And so I wonder about that idea, the power sort of of not knowing what that can do for people just to kind of sit in the, the gray in between. For me personally, I love that. Now, I think it is so great. I love uncertainty. I love having multiple truths, you know, existing at once. But I know that there was a time where I didn't, you know, and one of the things that religion provides for people is a sense of certainty. There is very prescriptive rules and lifestyles and ways to think and feel and relate that equal a specific outcome. That give that speaks to our human need for stability and safety and security. Those are basic nervous system needs, right? Religion hits some of those. <laughs> they go, hey, in order to be ultimately safe and in, in an eternal sense, then just follow these rules and, and you can be certain. And sometimes in religion, it's not even what you're certain about. It's just that you're certain, right? <laughs> you know? And so I think part of the recovery process then coming out of high controlled religions is really le- learning to sit in the tension of the gray area, of the in-between, of the no, maybe there's multiple answers to this. Maybe there isn't a certain answer, but that can feel wildly scary, especially coming out of a religion where you have never been taught how to think critically, how to tune into your own body to make choices, how to um, you know consider multiple options. When you're coming out of a system where difference equals danger, then anybody who is even just a tiny little bit different can feel really threatening to you. And that's often why people coming out of fundamentalist systems hop right into another fundamentalist system just with a different message because they get that certain certainty piece, it feels so unsettling to not know, (laughs) to not have that ground to stand on that it gives the illusion of safety to be back in a in a system like could be a cult. It could be veganism. It could be yogi. It could be anything uh, just to give a sense of certainty again. Very interesting. Right. And I, I wonder, oh, if we can talk a little bit about purity culture. You know, I know there are some things that when people hear about them, they think that does that still exist? And yes, there are a lot of places in in this world and places here in the States where these things do still exist and people are being raised with this as an ideal. What is it and what are the long-term impacts of things like that? 
Yeah. So purity culture technically started in, well, most people would put it back in the early nineties, other like research, like Sarah Mosliner has done some excellent research on purity culture and would actually date it back way further to around the time of world war one and world war two. Uh, at least we're seeing kind of the, um, the beginning pieces of purity culture that, that led it up to kind of a cultural phenomenon in the early nineties when we had things like the true love weights campaign, which was this, you know, pledge your virginity to your future spouse, you know, and it swept the nation. I mean, it, 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 it crossed over from a religious kind of practice into mainstream culture where you're seeing celebrities who are like, I'm going to wait till I'm married and, you know, things like that. And, and what they build it as was this idea that you wait until you're married to have sex. That's what purity culture is. Now, if you want to wait until you're married to have sex, great. I don't care. (laughs) That is your personal decision. So long as it's made not from a place of coercion or fear of consequence or things like that. If you go, Hey, this is a personal choice that I'm making because I think it's going to be best for me. I would celebrate and champion that. But what purity culture does is not only make that the right thing, the right way, the godly way, the only way there are then severe consequences. If you don't do that, as well as many other rules, it branches out. It is not just don't have sex before you get married. It spans into gender roles, into what you can wear, what you cannot wear, how you must speak to, act around, listen to the opposite gender. Because in purity culture, there's only two genders. You are man or woman, and men and women always belong together. There's no uh, heter- homosexuality is a huge sin. And so they start to essentially put rules and regulations around all of these just very natural, normal parts of life. Anything sexual is vilified. So if you're sexually attracted, sexually aroused, sexual desire, if it is before marriage and not for your spouse, that's a big no-no. You know, pornography, of course, is vilified um, in regard to creating all sorts of these issues and addictions that, you know, we now know are probably not really well-researched or real. Um, And so it it is very all-encompassing. And I do think it's important to say that while women tend to bear the brunt of the impact of purity culture, nobody wins in that system, regardless of gender. You know, like I said, I have uh, siblings who grew up male in that culture, and I watched them just agonize over, you know, their daily experience of trying to remain lust-free and to not, you know, engage in all these things that were really actually so normal for adolescents and so normal for adolescent development and where they were at. And so there really is nobody who wins. And I think what we're seeing now is that, and there's actually so much research that's being done on this and stuff that's actually come out, like been peer-reviewed with the long-term impacts of purity culture. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Dr. Tina Skirmer-Sellers. She started to notice a phenomenon probably, I want to say back in like 2007-ish, where she was teaching a human sexuality class at a progressive Christian university. And had asked all of her students to do kind of like a sexual history. And she started to notice these themes of kids or students who had grown up in these purity culture environments were now uh, demonstrating um, symptoms similar to those who had been sexually assaulted, sexually violated, raped, things like that. I can echo that in my own life personally, and as well as 
in the lives of my clients. And we now have research that's starting to back that up as well. Things like, you know, vaginismus and sexual pain directly related to purity culture. And so I really say that purity culture is a form of sexual abuse. It may not be the physical kind of sexual abuse that we might talk about in terms of like sexual assault or rape. But when we talk about vilifying your sexuality and damaging it and, you know, telling people to shut it down and having extreme consequences for if you engage with your sexuality and really, um, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable the messages that are taught in there. And of course, that's going to have an impact physiologically long-term. And so we do see a lot of symptoms cross over between victims of sexual assault and purity culture. And for the men as well, or just the women? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And again, personally, I know that to be true. I am a survivor of sexualized violence. And when I think about my process of resolving trauma from those experiences versus resolving trauma from purity culture, the purity culture piece was so much more difficult and so much like longer and more in depth because it was so deeply ingrained in me. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, pain during sex, uh, I'm, I'm wondering for the men, there was then the the same sorts of things, physiological impacts caused by anxiety or shame. Yeah. So we might be talking more of like sexual dysfunction, uh, erectile dysfunction, a lot of anxiety around performance, things like that. Yeah. Right. Or damaging a woman or her reputation or her whatever it is. Oh my goodness. Okay. It's so unfair. I don't know how else to say it. It's just so unfair to place this burden and to make something that is so natural uh, to, to approach it in such an unnatural way. Um, to see it as so evil without there being this sense of, you know what, we uh, we trust you. You're good people. You can do your thing. It would be wonderful if people were given that impression. Yeah. I remember hearing an interview a long time ago where the interviewer asked, um, I believe it was a pastor, kind of like, why is the church so obsessed with sex? That was the question that was asked. And the answer, this is my own paraphrase, but I, I agree with it. It was something to the effect of sex is competition for the church. And I remember sitting with that, knowing like intrinsically, like that fits. And then I let it sit and I was like, okay, what does that actually mean? And I think about like the power of our sexuality. So our sexuality is inherent to us. We are born with it, but our sexuality is not just about the physical acts of sex that we can have with a partner or partners or with ourselves. Like our sexuality informs our passions. It informs how we relate to other people, how we relate to ourselves, how we see the world. It impacts social justice. Like it is so much bigger than this really narrow definition that a lot of religious groups um, create it to be. But what is so interesting is that when we lean into that, the sexuality, the sexual parts of ourselves, and it's like all encompassing, it's literally like the foundation of our lives literally gives life, right? Because sexual, like sexual acts can create life, but it like gives life. It gives vibrance. It gives color. And I think that that scares the church who is so determined to control and determined to get their hooks into. And so if they can vilify this innate part of ourselves, if they can control that and create consequences around it, the competition decreases. 
And I, I remember one of my favorite kind of anecdotes from my own life is like my, the first sexual experience I ever had, I assumed I would feel absolutely disgusting, guilty, and ashamed afterwards. And I woke up the next morning, like kind of staying in bed going, okay, I'm going to stay here as long as I can, because as soon as I get out of bed, like all this shame is going to descend on me. Like everybody's told me it's going to happen. And I waited till the last minute I get out of bed. And I remember putting my feet on the floor and I felt so connected to myself, to God, whatever that was, to the universe. I remember sitting there smiling, going, oh, they don't want me to feel this way. They don't want me to have that sense of empowerment and connection to myself, to be whole in myself. And it was like this aha moment, this like the clouds are clearing, right? And that was very confusing to me. And so I actually like prayed for weeks that I would be convicted and made to feel guilty. That did not happen, by the way. Um, But if we lean into that a little bit, I think it shows the power of our sexuality, of being connected to ourselves, connected to other people, connected to this very like earthy experience, right? That like grounds us into the universe. And that is terrifying to people or groups or a person who wants to control you. Oh, it's so interesting. And and I think also this realization that it did not change you constitutionally. It didn't change you spiritually, didn't turn you into something that you're not. In fact, it helped you realize more about who you are, which is so interesting. And so, yeah, I think that these moments are considered pivotal, but in this very scary way, but they really are pivotal. If they're, if it's done on your terms, you know, and if it's done in a safe way and in a respectful way, then yeah, it can be a very, a very good experience. You know, it's, it's so hard when you're given a whole range of uh, emotions and physical sensations that you can experience, but that there are a number of them that are made to be seen as the devil, uh, scary, evil. It happens within cultic groups that you're not allowed to feel angry. You're not allowed to feel sad, right? So you're at odds with yourself so often. And if you can think of these things as if you believe in God, then they are God-given, then they're not necessarily inherently evil. And also, if you can return to yourself this sense of self-trust, you're going to handle things okay. How do people get that back, that sense that they can trust themselves? Because that is usually robbed of people in organizations. Yeah. And I might even say that it's not so much about getting it back. It's about having it for the first time, <laughs> especially if you've grown up in, in an environment like this. I really love Brene Brown's work around self-trust. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her little uh, video clip, but she talks about it in some of her books called The Anatomy of Trust. She breaks down what are the component parts of trust. When somebody says, I trust you or I don't trust you, what does that actually mean? Because that's such a big, vague statement. But she breaks it down and then then she twists it and she said, and this is how we develop trust within ourselves as well. Oftentimes when when a client comes to me and we're talking about this right here, the self-trust piece, like how do I even start to develop it? I usually will ask them to watch the video and see what stands out to them. That might be an area that we can start with. And so it's simple or hopefully simple things, but we want to start small. So like if I set a boundary, am I keeping it? If I say I'm going to do something, do I follow through? 
Do they practice what I preach? Like if I say this thing is important to me, is that reflected in my actions? Do I give myself the benefit of the doubt, you know, or do I assume the worst of myself? Do I kind of exploit myself by sharing details of my life and my story with people who maybe have not earned that space in my life? Or am I able to show up authentically without oversharing? These are all some little areas where we go, hey, when I can do this, I start to create a sense of trust within myself. I think that combined with like self-compassion can be really helpful, especially coming out of environments where you are made to believe that you are unworthy, that there's nothing good about you. Developing self-compassion can go like hand in hand with the trust piece. And of course that's easier said than done too, but paying attention, how do I speak to myself? Do I allow myself to be human and make mistakes? Can I connect to other people or do I isolate myself? Yeah. And so I think paying attention to some of those things, I always say like, let's just start with a teeny tiny little bit and work on that and add to it rather than like diving in and being like, I have to have boundaries and I've got to stop thinking this way and I've got to do this and do that. You know, it's like, okay, what are, what was like one little thing? Like if we're going to work on a little bit of self-compassion, could we just start to pay attention to the, the narrative? the tape that's playing in our head, can we start to slow that down and pause it so that we have a chance to change it down the road? If we want to rely, you know, develop reliability so that when I say I'm going to do something, I'm actually going to follow through. What are some easy ways we could do that? I'm going to do this one task every single day this week. Okay. Can we just do that? We don't have to change our whole schedule. Can we just show up in the way that we said we were going to in this tiny way? When we can start smaller, it helps then build our confidence. Okay. I can build on this. I can do this. Right. Oh, it's so important. It's so important. Okay. So just as we're finishing up, what else, what else would you like to let us know about, inform the the listeners about just the insights that you have? One of my greatest privileges is having opened a company that specifically focuses on religious trauma. It's called the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. We operate as coaches, though most of us have backgrounds in mental health, as well as advanced trauma training, things like somatic experiencing, IFS, things like that. Everybody who works at the center has their own background and their own trauma healing story. And, and then a real passion for working with individuals who, or couples or groups who have come out of groups like this, cults, dynamics of power and control, experience purity culture, adverse religious experiences, to meet them where they're at. One of the things that we noticed is that there's just not a lot of resources out there. Um, There's not a lot of people who are trained to know about trauma and to understand the ins and outs of high control religion and cults and systems like this. And so uh, we wanted to provide a, a service to be able to do that. So I have that. That's the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. And we always have room for more clients. There's about 12 practitioners there. And they're ready to see clients or most of them are, have openings. Um, I'm also publishing a book. Well, I'm not a book of mine is being published, um, in October. It's called when religion hurts you healing from religious trauma and the impact of high control religion. And that is, um, I used a lot of research from my own doctoral dissertation to look for like when we are um, processing through trauma as when we're living uh, the, the experience of living in a healing body after we have, you know, been traumatized, like what are we looking for? What are some of the things that we see? How do we live life? after we've experienced such extreme harm or abuse or adversity. And so um, it's my 
contribution <laughs> uh, to the world, just in the sense of creating resource, hopefully creating hope um, that there is life outside of both the healing work as well as high control groups and religions. Um, and that'll be available in October of this year. And I'm, of course, I'm also on social media. You can follow me there if you want, Dr. Laura E. Anderson. Wonderful. Oh, it was such a pleasure to talk to you and to go over so many really important subjects. There's so many people, millions actually, who are dealing with this issue. And so to know that there is a center for them to go to, to know that there are people who understand is uh, in incredibly helpful. It pierces the isolation, uh, the feeling of being other. And so I'm so happy that you're doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. It is really important that Dr. Laura Anderson is doing the work that she's doing. It is so powerful to hear about religious trauma, adverse religious experiences, spiritual abuse, deconversion, purity culture, all of it. And also where trauma resides in the body and how to heal from it. There's so much here to learn, so much to discuss. It was really interesting when she said, I thought I made somebody stumble by what I wore. It is crippling, I think, for so many people to be given the sense that they're responsible for other people's difficulties. And that if somehow you do something that you're not supposed to do, you can cause terrible things to happen in other people's lives. And that's imaginary, but it can feel very real when it's given to you as a fear. What I find really ironic about her story is that she was given this fear that by doing something that might not have seemed mm, that it was in line with purity culture, that she was going to cause harm to someone else, again, in this imaginary sense. But from her telling of it, this group and the people in it didn't just imagine that they were sabotaging her. They actually did sabotage her in real time and in a very real way. They sabotaged her ability to get connected to the world outside, as she said, by contacting the program she had applied to and defaming her and making her look bad and sound bad. They were really standing in her way. So here they made her feel like she had this power somehow magically to cause other people to stumble. But meanwhile, they were purposely making her stumble. So many people are left feeling like they're doing something wrong when they're not. And they're accused of doing something wrong by people who are actually doing something wrong. It's hard to see that in the moment. It's hard to see it when you're in it. But it's so important to have that frame of mind and that perspective. And think about it too, that if a group is supposed to be helping you in your life, why are they getting in your way? Very often, a group that thinks that you should be doing it the way they say, they don't want you to go against them. But I think, and I can't help but think, that they're very worried about you having success going a route that is not sanctioned by them. Because what would that mean 
about them? And what would that mean about you? It could mean that they're wrong and that you actually don't have to follow what they say in order to have a good life, a happy life, a successful life, or do good work. And what does it mean about you that you could exist without them and you could exist maybe in a better way? The fact that here these are people who are supposed to be caring about you, but you actually need to worry about them putting up roadblocks to you having the life that you want to have. I think there's something really selfish about that, unconscionable. I think it's underhanded. And I think if people really care about you, they'll let you pursue what you want to pursue and be an adjunct to your life, not be a stumbling block. That they'll be there if you need them. They'll care about you if you want to stay connected to them. But they won't get in your way. I'm so happy for Laura that she was able to move away from an organization that was not linking arms with her as she went on her journey in life, but rather was standing quite in front of her and blocking her. It's hard when you have people who say they care, but the only way for you to have a good life and to do good things and the important things that she's doing right now, so much of what she's doing is helping people heal, but that she's only been able to do that in spite of them, not because of them. And it's important to remember that. If you're ever part of a group, and in order for you to have happiness, or in order for you to do good work, something that's meaningful or in line with your conscience, if you have to somehow sidestep them or sneak around them, do it in spite of them, as opposed to with them or because of them, it's really time for you to look at this organization and see how much they care more about enforcing their rules than they care about you having a good life. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination. <laughs>